Last week, I told you that a friend of mine, Ingracia Figueroa, passed away under tragic circumstances on October 31st. We set up an in memoriam page where you can learn more about her and her activism. I'm also including links about the horrendous treatment that folks with visible and invisible disabilities are subjected to while flying. When Ingracia and I were talking in July about what happened to her chair, I had no idea that airlines destroyed up to 30 wheelchairs a day. So first, take some time to educate yourself about the problem. Secondly, please take a moment to read and sign the petition, which demands that United Airlines and all other airlines end the damage and destruction of assistive devices and wheelchairs on flights and create an accessible process that allows individuals with disabilities to travel safely and with dignity. Earlier this year, we interviewed Matt Lauterbach, Dr. Grishma Shaw, and Rebecca Torres of the Real Abilities Film Festival in Chicago. And Gracia was not only an artist and actress, she was also a curator for the Real Abilities Film Festival Los Angeles. She expressed disappointment about not being able to attend because she had to go back into the hospital for what we know now would be the last time. Visit these websites to find out how you can support the powerful work that this organization is doing. And I will continue to upload calls to action that are supported by Ingracia's family. Welcome to the What's Up With Docs podcast. I'm Tony Bell, the creator and host. This week's guest is based in Seattle, Washington, which is on the unceded territory of the Coast Salish peoples, which touches the shared waters of all tribes and bands within the Duwamish, Puyallup, Susquamish, Tulalip, and Mokoshot nations. The city of Seattle is named for Chief Si'ad, who lived from 1780 to 1866. He was a Duwamish and Susquamish ancestor who said, this we know, the earth does not belong to man. Man belongs to the earth. This we know, all things are connected like the blood which unites one family, all things are connected. In this episode, I speak with friend, writer, director, and co-producer, Raven Two Feathers. During our conversation, we chat about when we first met and my struggle with the Seattle Hills, the Fourth World Media Lab, their VR project, A Drive to Top Surgery, which screened at Imaginative this year, their zine, Qualifications of Being, and their new production company, Raven and Relatives. Raven is unapologetically Cherokee, Seneca, Cayuga, and Comanche. And because American Thanksgiving is just around the corner, Raven selected the Halusu Nations, formerly known as a tribe called Red, burn your village to the ground. The band themselves deliver the following message about the holiday. On this fourth Thursday of November, you might ask yourself, do Indians celebrate Thanksgiving? Well, Thanksgiving is a complicated holiday for native people. In a way, each day is a day of Thanksgiving to the creator for the original peoples of Turtle Island. This doesn't mean that we don't enjoy turkey, pie, and family as much as the next person. But at the same time, the Thanksgiving myth largely shared in mainstream culture perpetuates a one-sided view of a complicated history surrounding this holiday. Here is my conversation with Raven, which was recorded in October, 2021. So I always begin these conversations with how we met. So I actually met you a few years ago at the Seattle International Film Festival, and you were one of the fellows for the Fourth World Media Lab. So for um, those in our audience who don't know what that is, can you tell us a little bit about the Fourth World Media Lab? Sure. Fourth World Media Lab uh, was originally housed under Longhouse Media. Now it's housed under Nia Taro, and it's run primarily by Tracy Rector, uh, who's been my mentor since I was 16. And, um, and Fourth World Media Lab takes you to three different uh, documentary film festivals or film festivals with documentaries, at least. Um, and we get to pitch ideas that we have, uh, do internal pitches with industry executives, and really build our network for uh, having a long-term relationship, both with the folks that we are in fellowship with, uh, who are other indigenous um, filmmakers and creators, as well as the people who are attending the docs, doc fests that year. And so we typically run 
um, into Big Sky Film Festival, and then from there, Seattle International Film Festival. And uh, at least for my year, we finished out at Camden International Film Festival in Maine. It was so fun having you in the room, hearing all of the different stories that each of us were pitching and then being able to hang out with you afterwards. Do you want to tell people about our uh, misadventures? <laughs> For me, it was my first time in Seattle. And after the events of the festival, Raven and I got the chance to hang out. And we went on a search for crumpets because I got into crumpets recently at that point because Trader Joe's had really great crumpets and like just the way it absorbs the butter, like when it's hot and melty, it's just wonderful. So Raven said, oh, there's this crumpet place. And we went there, but it was closed because I think it was a Monday. But I did manage to make it there my second trip to Seattle recently because like if I don't do anything else, I'm going to get those damn crumpets. <laughs> did you crumpet yourself out on this trip? I, I went there twice. Okay. But the main place, and we already talked about this, I went to was Biscuit Bit. So for those of you who don't know, in Seattle, there's this place called Biscuit Bitch. They have two locations. It's probably like around the corner from each other. And they had the best biscuits I probably ever have had in my life. And that stayed a lot because I'm from the South. <laughs> the great thing about it is like you have to put in your order ahead of time. And then you, there's a wait time. And then you, you go there and pick up your food. But they have great food, really fatty food, not good for your heart at all. <laughs> But um, I think I was in Seattle five days and I went there four mornings, um, <laughs> four out of the five days. You know? And they could make some grits too. I didn't know that. The grits, the, the, yeah, the grits were phenomenal. Wow. Because they because they had that hot mess platter mm -hmm. where they put the biscuit with the oh, gravy yeah, yeah. and the grits and like the hot links on there. You just get all, totally. all piled on each other. Yeah. And, you know, um, I'm a connoisseur of grits because, you know, I'm uh, from the South. Yeah. So I was like very surprised. At, they got somebody Southern back there making those grits. <laughs> and the biscuits. I'm used to eating uh, grits as well because my mom and grandma grew up in or my mom grew up in Florida. And so, yeah, clo close enough. And that was the first time that my grandma ever had grits because she was from Illinois. So where in Florida did your mom grow up? It was mainly in Miami. And so okay. plenty of mm -hmm. good Cuban food. And my grandma always loved yes. the mojito every once in a while, or at least a well-made one. So I remember uh again, my first time being in Seattle. And for those of you who don't know, Seattle has heels. And when I say heels, they are heels. They are nothing to um, to joke about. <laughs> they are hardcore, especially if you're like from LA and from flat places. Mm -hmm. So I remember like, we didn't really know each other well at, at that time, but I remember I was just huffing and puffing and breathing so hard, trying to pretend like I wasn't dying, you know, because I was like, so, you know, because I felt a little bit of shame, like, oh, why is it so hard? Didn't I say we could stop if you wanted to? And you were like, no, it's okay. No, it's okay, but it wasn't okay. <laughs> That's why we had to stop at Starbucks <laughs> on the way up. Exactly, yeah. But we ended up at this chocolate lava place, which was like had amazing desserts. And we just got a chance to sit and like talk. Always associate you with good times in Seattle. I really want you to kind of get into your relationship and friendship with Tracy Rector, because just from the conversations that we've had, she has been such a huge part of your filmmaking life. Because I, like you met her when you were 16. So when you were a baby. Yep. So and she's kind of like been with you like almost like every step of the way. And also Tracy is just such an incredibly like nurturing person in so many ways. And she's about spreading the knowledge and the education and the wisdom. So sing her praises. Yeah. So I met Tracy when I was, I don't even remember, it was 15 or 16. I had just moved here from Hawaii and was looking to continue my film career. I was going to be in a, a film class at one of the top film high schools here. And that was a program out of Ballard High School. And that was with Mr. Lawrence. One of my aunts was here and said that I should apply for Superfly, which was a 36 hour documentary creation process with other youth, primarily indigenous youth. Um, and that was headed up by Tracy Rector. And so I applied with my wonderful aunt as a reference. 
and I got in. And so I was off to the Suquamish Nation, which is just across the Salish Sea from Seattle and started making a documentary in 36 hours. It was super fun though. What was that film about? They had pre-planned with each nation different groups and what they would each be doing. And so I got into the canoe documentary group. And so we were interviewing an elder about how back in the day she and a few other folks stole a canoe out of the museum to do their traditional paddling up their canoe journey up to Canada. Okay, I love that. Yes, take it back. Right? Peg Deem is so sweet. It really helped me step into directing, actually. And I hadn't really, while I had sort of dabbled in it in my uh, time taking film classes in Hawaii, it didn't feel as real until that point. And that there was almost a, a market and an audience for Indigenous films. And so that's where I really credit Tracy in my life of being the person who brought me really into the reality of Indigenous filmmaking. So it sounds like you've always known that you wanted to be a filmmaker. So I joke that when I was three, I watched too much TV. I saw a producer pop up as the first credit and I was like, I want to do that. (laughs) And I didn't even know that until high school when my mom had come back from some parent-teacher conference and she said how I had said when I was three that the first job I wanted was to be a producer. I just remember seeing the screen and being like, ooh, that's the first thing, first credit, producer. That one, I'll take it. That's awesome. (laughs) (laughs) That's so great because I'm the type of person who, it took me forever to kind of figure out what I wanted to do when I grew up. So I feel like I'm finally doing that now and always like have great admiration for people who just, they come out knowing, you know. (laughs) I mean, I have to come out knowing yeah. right? <laughs> In so many ways. So I wanted to ask you about, so you went to the Santa Fe University of Art and Design. So is that mm-hmm. where you basically c- continued the training in film that you began like when you were a kid? A lot of the very industry specific stuff I learned at Santa Fe University of Art and Design, part of the last graduating class. RIP. What happened with that? Is it no more? Correct, unfortunately. But a lot of our professors would go talk at USC, UCLA, and then come back to Santa Fe because they liked the atmosphere. Those professors at Santa Fe University of Art and Design taught me so much about what it means to to be on set and to really get down into the nitty gritty because Mm. Santa Fe New Mexico is so close to LA that with our tax incentives, it draws a lot of folks to New Mexico. Yeah, a lot of shows are filmed there. Yeah. A lot of Hollywood shows are filmed there. And Netflix and NBC have been studios there now. It's it's booming for sure. Okay, so I want to get a little bit into um, your zine, yes. Qualifications of Being. So um, actually... When I put up your webpage, I'm going to take mm-hmm. some photos of some of the stickers from your zine that you gave me. <laughs> so <laughs> put it on the page so people can see them because it's online, but then there's also, you have physical copies and then you have like, uh, you have stickers that go along with it. So tell us what your zine is about and what was the inspiration behind it? Well, first of all, that I still need to update the website with those stickers and other other paraphernalia. The zine came out of me having to talk with Tracy and then I had also brought my friend Johnny Ciccone along as well and we were talking about how I wanted some way to show what the almost transitionary and and internal aspects of realizing I'm trans and realizing I'm two-spirit how all that came about but of course a film from when I was like three up to current day would be super expensive. So Johnny, who had been a friend since high school, said, why not a comic or or zine? And Tracy immediately jumped on that and was like, yes, let's do it. And then I was like, okay, I guess. 
we're going for it because I had never done something like that before beyond of course you know typical storyboard stuff for a narrative film so it was a journey for sure and how many issues do you have out into the world I think at least 500 250 of those went to the Puyallup Pride Fair this year with the Puyallup Tribe they bought 250 copies for anyone who was coming to their their Pride Fest that year and so got to distribute those and, and sign some copies as well. So that was super, super sweet. And it's nice to see how I affect people in the world. Because I knew that I needed to write something like this because my younger self would have needed it desperately when I was younger. But, um, you know, doing what I can now to fulfill those needs of, of people in similar circumstances as me. Your journey to affirming your being, your two-spiritness, was that something that was affirmed in your home? Yeah, it was. That was fine. I feel like the process of a physical transition was a little hard on my family at times. Simply the, uh, the grieving process, working its way through things. And so, you know, there's room for the complexity of, of people loving you, but also being scared of the things that they don't know, but wanting the best for you. You know, it's like stepping into saying that you're going to be an artist when you grow up. It's like, oof, how are we going to make this work? <laughs> you need to get a real job. <laughs> <laughs> you can't make any money doing that. <laughs> how are you going to survive? But look at us. Those of us who, like, like myself and Renell, who aren't Indigenous, we know that there are a lot of nations that recognize like, the fact that some people have, have two spirits. So, and it's more readily accepted in some, some Indigenous communities than others. You know. I will jump in and say that two-spirit is a modern term. It's essentially a modern umbrella term from Anishinaabemowin, which is the Anishinaabe language. I think it was uh, Nij Manadawag is what essentially got translated into English as Two-Spirit and then adopted in the late 80s, early 90s to be an umbrella term for all of the different ways of being beyond man and woman for the continent. Thank you for that, that bit of education. Because sometimes we use these terms and phrases and we don't really know where they come from mm -hmm. so let's get to know the origins of that in regards to your scene because it is a comic have you ever thought about doing some kind of like animating it in some way well there is an audiobook that we still need to uh to get edited and, and put up on the website but beyond that there has been the thought of of how to integrate animation into even the things that I'm doing in general. And there might be a, a short that's coming up that integrates animation as well, but that's a little bit farther off. But yeah, there's there's been talk about doing something akin to in a short animated piece. I mean, it would probably be like 40 minutes with how many pages this thing is, but... Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Disney? Mm -hmm. Do you mm -hmm. want to... Okay, exactly. They say they want to be more inclusive. <laughs> so, hey... <laughs> Native and queer. Perfect. Perfect. Um, is it primarily your personal stories or uh, stories from other two-spirit and, and trans folks are included as well? I don't know. I felt like when I was creating this thing and generally when I create anyways, it's like, how do I balance these very particular stories about my own life with elevating others? Because at least for as far as native culture is concerned it's it's learning how to be humble and how to present yourself and do good things for the community in a good way and so you know that's at odds with the expected self-promotion that we get in western society but the reason that i really doubled down on on telling my own story and taking up the entire comic to do so is that all I had ever seen in my research of different zines or um, compilations of stories is exactly that. It's compilations of stories. And so everyone's story gets truncated down into at best a page or two. And so what do we do when we 
take up as much time as we need to tell our full stories. Taking up the space to explore all of you. And I think I think that is in general how I want to carry myself as well. Everyone might not take that as being humble, but I do what I can for the community in regards to my actions beyond just the words and uh, and taking the time and energy to work in community and to take up as much space as we used to have. It's like, why not take back the the pride and the level of richness that we had in our lives? I love and appreciate that so much because maybe when people are thinking about creating things from the, like, the space of what becomes a compilation, um, it all like just based on what you said, also, uh, almost makes me think about being kind of in a scarcity mm-hmm. um, mentality. And like, there's only room for just these little bits. Whereas there's, we need to recognize this room for the entirety of a being. Mm-hmm. And, th- and everybody has a unique story and should have the opportunity just to tell it in its, in its fullness. Even amongst Black and Indigenous folks, we're made to fight amongst each other for what little resources. I think we were talking about this either over the phone or at dinner, that there's that scarcity mindset in that we're going to give you, say, 2% of the pie and the other 98%, which is normally not accessible to us. Oh, no, we can't cut you any more of that. Yeah, we're not going to give that up, which is so problematic. And I actually think a lot of the language around that needs to be changed because uh, or shifted. So we talk about under-resourced groups. Like may maybe we should talk about how some groups are over-resourced. Bring that to the forefront because if someone is under-resourced, it means that somebody or another group is getting more than a fair share. But that's a sociopolitical move that's being made anyways. It's like, how do we get these people? Like, especially when I look at uh, cis men of color, it's like, ooh, y'all need to learn how to step back. Because <laughs> there are points where it's like, you are are doing what you can. I get to pull up as, as much money as you can to survive in this world, but also that that is just playing into what they want you to do and, and does it benefit community? Speaking of that, I don't know if we want to talk about this, but do, do we want to chat about Mr. Chappelle? A, a cis man of color. I watched the special, which I probably shouldn't have watched because it feeds into the, as Hannah Gatsby mm-hmm. calls it, the amoral algorithm, which I love, <laughs> <laughs> you know, referring to Netflix. But I didn't get it for several reasons. He seemed to not realize that, you know, there are Black trans folks and there are like Black LGBTQ folks. I'm like, you know, like, do you not understand that? It's like, no, you need to pick one. You are either Black or you're queer. It doesn't work that way. So and then another thing that bothered me about it was when he was talking about his friend Daphne, his friend who is Daphne, who is trans and a comedian. And it felt like he was saying like, oh, well, this trans person agrees with me, therefore I'm good. And like, it reminded me of how like some white people like point to Clarence Thomas mm-hmm. or to, to Larry Elder or Candace Owens. Like, oh, this black person agrees. So I don't see what your problem is. It's almost like class has something to do with it. I mean, yeah. So, I mean, I don't know if you want to kind of like, I mean, talk about that from the perspective of like how cisgendered men need to do better. I think that that is all that they need to hear. (laughs) Y'all need to do better. Step back and listen. Yeah, it was weird and offensive. But then also here in LA, you know, there's been, and there's probably a lot of been things been posted on Facebook about it too. Several of the Netflix trans employees and other allies have been speaking out. Like they're firing people. Is that really a shock to you, Tony? No, no, but it's just, it's just like, wow. Like, you're actually proving the point by, you know, <laughs> right. by acting in this way. But also that cis men get coddled so much. It's not their own fault per se. That is how society has been structured in that, you know, you get as many chances as you want. It's interesting now being perceived in the uh, image they have or with the sort of masculine output that I have right now. There definitely is a boys club. There is. 
I don't know, a certain vulnerability and, and camaraderie that I see in groups of men, sort of similar to how, you know, you can get a nice girls night out and, and everyone's banding together, but finding a way to use that and use that vulnerability and step into that vulnerability in a public setting, I think is a necessary step to breaking down the toxic masculinity of having to always keep your guard up. Even within when you're perceived as as female or feminine, it is harmful. You're always keeping your guard up. Where is all that energy going? That's so true. And I've actually found that as I've gotten older, what one of the blessings of that is like, I don't have to keep so much of that guard up anymore because mm-hmm. I'm not seen as quote unquote, as desirable, you know, <sighs> which I'm like, I'm cool with, but then it's like, oh, that's so messed up in so many ways. Mm-hmm. Um, because there are ways that, um, you know, um, when we're as, you know, a cis woman moving in the world, particularly like being young. I mean, we remember being in my 20s that you know, just have to adapt and adjust mm. to a lot of, like really, frankly, a lot of predatory behavior. You just adapt to it and you you shift your life based on that. And I, I just remember times like when I didn't have a car and like sometimes if there was a corner where I knew I would get harassed on, I would just change my route. And sometimes I would add 30 minutes onto my, wow. my route. Just the things that we just kind of take for granted that we just naturally do. There's this really great podcast I want to point people to. It's called Other Men Need Help. It's run by this Latinx dude. I think he's originally from Puerto Rico. He really gets into topics around like breaking down toxic masculinity. Mm. So like he has this episode where he's focusing on how he is learning, try to tell his male friends that he loves them. Oh, yeah. And then, but, um, but also talking about the discomfort of that and how that's, that's rooted in homophobia and like the things he's doing to kind of like overcome that. But it really talks about male relationships and male identity and just, and male vulnerability. And like, it's just a really great podcast for, I think for folks who are looking for something that's an antidote to the toxic masculinity that's out there that people definitely should like tap into. It's very inspirational and very hopeful. Let's go into your series about Indigenous trans and two-spirit folks. Mm -hmm. I remember that's what actually you were working on when I first, well, one of the things you were working on when I first met you at the Fourth World Media Lab. I don't think everyone on the group is going to, or everyone in the series is going to identify as trans or two-spirit. But just having that that realm outside of the gender binary um, for indigenous folks that are inhabiting this continent are of keen importance for me to to get that diversity of people that are in my life and inhabiting all of these different identities and simply knowing how to live in in their own bodies and, and figuring out what it means to be in community and in relation with the land that they're on and ancestrally and really figuring out, you know, what it means to, to be. The qualifications of being, if you will. <laughs> yes, the qualifications of being, being back to the zine. <laughs> Me and Johnny came up with that title we were throwing around different ideas at Beth's Cafe which is 24-7 cafe here in Seattle and it was 5 a.m this thing was due that day oh no (laughs) and we did not have a title for it so I mean that seems to be my crux is that I just titles are either at the very beginning of the project or five minutes before it's due um who are some of the people that you profile Yeah, uh, so we start off with me because a a big thing that I learned in college was being able to, and maybe this is an Indigenous thing too that I just took on, of being a leader requires being able to step into the same or similar roles and uncomfortability and vulnerability that you are going to be placing other people in. Okay, can you say that again? I don't know. Can I? Yeah, because that's some wisdom. Drop drop that knowledge again. Come on. What is being a leader? Yeah. So being a leader for me, and this is probably also a, uh, a thing I inherited being 
from indigenous communities, um, Cherokee, Seneca, Cayuga, and Comanche. And being a leader for me is realizing that I need to step into the roles of, um, of vulnerability and of uncomfortability for the safety of the people who I will be putting in front of the camera or I will be putting in the line of sight, honestly. There's a lot of talk in the documentary community about the importance of visibility, but sometimes visibility, if it's not done correctly, can be harmful. Mm -hmm. Wasn't there a, I scroll through a lot of memes and internet content about how simply putting someone in a role of, of visibility in an office place or what have you, who is a marginalized person and not giving them any support is just setting them up for failure. Oh, uh, yeah, I know that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Nella's giving a, a emoji, a clapping. Yes, <laughs> it is, it is. And sometimes I think, well, particularly in this past year with everything that happened with the protest mm -hmm. and everybody claiming that Black Lives Matter and all the resulting things around that. It's interesting because, you know, a lot of folks of color have been tapped to like lead organizations, you know, as a step in. And initially that seems great, but then the question is, are they actually going to be getting the support that they need to make the changes that are actually needed? Are they just a token? Are they hiring these people to actually not do a job? <laughs> right. <You know? laughs> Have they been harmful to their own communities? That part too. Come on with that. Thank you. Or other communities. Because, you know, there's a stain in the, in the Black community and not all my skin folk or my kin folk. Totally. And that goes like across the board. So, because sometimes I hear people saying, oh, we need to get a person of color in this position. We need to get a person of color in this position. Are you going to support them? Mm -hmm. Are they going to be quitting after six months of the year because they just get burnt out? It's like all these things, you know, it's not just about having a body there. You know, there's so many things to think about. Yeah. So you're basically, you're starting with you. Starting with me. And then current plan is to meet with other friends across the country because I'd been, and I think this was a thing when I was pitching it to you as well, is figuring out what is my tie to these people? How do I, similar to a lot of doc applications now, how do I have a connection with these people and how do I not just become a, a parachute in journalist and yes. take the stories mm -hmm. and go, even though, yes, I am indigenous, but I am not every single indigenous culture. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You're not all the, of the indigenous. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, it's using these umbrella terms to get to the heart of, of who a person is and what their experiences are. And so with this piece, I'm trying to find the heart of those community and those individuals within communities, different communities from across the continent, and what it means to exist and the different philosophies that we all have and cultures that influence us, but in a way that is just as, as vulnerable and as heartwarming and hopeful as I hope that my content is in general. Even though one of my other folks, another colleague that I worked with recently said how he thought that we have a need to focus on the, the format that we work on and, and really promote ourselves as within a very niche market. I feel that my work spans a lot of different mediums, but that the, the feeling of hope, comfort, and embracing the uncomfortable and being vulnerable is really what is driving my work, whether that's in the form of zines or comics, films, audioscape, VR, 360 video, doesn't really matter because that is just a vessel for the story or it doesn't matter as much as finding the best way to bring a story to life and to help nurture that story into being. So where are you in the series at this point? At the end of September, we shot the almost the rest of the pilot with myself, which is super helpful because we don't have to fly anywhere yet for, <laughs> for filming that pilot. So it's a, a wee bit cheaper. We still need to edit that okay. and hopefully 
get in to pitch it at Big Sky, but right now we have some money from Vision Maker Media, which has been super, super helpful, as well as from a local organization called Potlatch Fund, does funding of the Pacific Northwest states. I believe it's Washington, Oregon, Idaho, and Montana. And so their funding has a whole bunch of different uh, avenues that they disperse funding to Native communities and individuals. I got the money through their artist fund program initially for the release of qualifications of being actually, and most recently through the resiliency fund. Like, where do you want that to be? In the world. Yeah. So with my agreement with Vision Maker Media and being able to get in or get those developmental dollars, which is great. It's been super, super helpful. Being able to get those dollars and make that agreement with Vision Maker has meant that I, as I had hoped, am going to be on public television at the end of this process. I watched a lot of PBS when I was younger. And even though the viewership tends to skew older, I think that the reflective nature and sort of slower, steady pace of this, as well as, you know, it being public and free for people to access, which is very, very important to me, is exactly what I wanted for this piece. And I think it's going to be a great Kickstarter for my ever-growing career. One thing I wanted to ask is about the filmmaking um, process in regards to the series because you brought up vulnerability a lot mm-hmm. today. I don't know if you can define this or articulate this, but how has your experience been like being the director but also the subject? Oh, totally. That's been really interesting. Oh, also side note that I, in tandem with developing this pilot, have been starting to open my own business production company, something or other called Raven and Relatives. We have the website and all of the social medias, but have done nothing with them so far, but feel free to subscribe or, or follow yes. or like the page. But yeah, ravenandrelatives.com. So it's been really interesting to be both the director and the initial subject, because as we my team, Steve Hyde is my DP, and then Eleni Ledesma and Nils Cowan are my producers, and then my associate producer, Kay Johnston, is also working on this. And so having this group of Indigenous folks, queer folks working on this project, just as I'd hoped, has been super impactful on creating an environment where I feel Like I can talk to them and and feel safe and sharing whatever I need to share. And I've been working with these folks for at least three years now. It's been incredibly fulfilling to be able to almost, you know, with any film set, get paid to hang out with the people that you, you like and create cool things. So, yeah, I really love that creation process with them and having the... The strong backbone of, you know, Eleni's always been a great cheerleader and and person to be around. And um, as she puts it, she's a crafty mom and does so so much more than crafty for sure. But uh, and she's a former momager too. Yes, yes, because <laughs> <laughs> her son um, used to be an actor. So yes, yeah, she was doing the momager thing in the good way. With her being a momager and then with Nils having, I think it was like 20 years of producing experience in documentaries, it's like, I have a good team and and being able to be in spaces. We shot a lot of it at Steve Hyde's studio. And so shooting at his studio and being in a, yeah, just being in a place where it feels comfortable and that I can be open and that we are in a collaborative dance, if you will, in figuring out what is the best way to approach this pilot, because it is semi-experimental in its approach. And so we're still figuring things out as we move along. And I think that there's an aspect of, even on this podcast, of, of being open about the process that we don't always get, because we're taught, even when I was in college, it's like you're taught to keep finances and the process close to you and people people don't share the information and i mean there obviously there are some things that might be proprietary but just 
the basis of how to do something shouldn't be part of my annoyance when I first moved to LA. Moved to LA to get into screenwriting. I did the UCLA professional screenwriting program, but I was going to all these events with producers and screenwriters and you know, directors. And they were so vague about the specifics. And I found it like annoying, like you spend time to drive somewhere, you sit for an hour or, or two or whatever. And it's great to hear about, particularly if you're a fan of their work and just hearing about like some of the getting some inside knowledge of what they're doing, but the specifics of the, the how to, it's just not there. And I'm yeah. like, how is that like serving anybody? Even when I was talking to, I was getting some advice from Sam Fader, who directed Disclosure. And I think I was the only Native person on that crew, which is a whole other... Oh, so you, you worked on Disclosure? Yes, I worked on Disclosure. You work a lot. Yes, even though I yeah, think I don't. Yeah. But No, but filmmaking is your real job. Yes. So, <laughs> yes, it, it totally is. You're always doing something. Yeah, so tell us about the experience working on Disclosure. Yeah, it was the first time that I had ever had so many trans people on set as well and so I was acting as the AD fellow but sort of turned into the acting second AD so that was really cool to be able to really give time and energy to the other folks who were still learning a little bit more or were still in school um, and learning film in general and how sets run Oh, also, I got a hug from Laverne Cox. It fulfilled my life. I will say I was the only Indigenous person on set, though. So we have some issues with Indigenous representation, but Sam Fader has been super great. Sam Fader, the director of Disclosure, has been super great. He was great on set. We would always get the all the fellows together to talk quite a bit about what our feelings were about being on set and, and what we've been learning and really have some downtime with him and the producer as well, Amy Shoulder. That has really been a really good lesson for me in regards to how to take time for people and create environments for bringing other younger folks into, into the dialogue and conversation about moving people who are marginalized into different roles and the roles that they want to pursue. And into the center. I feel like just from everything I've heard from folks who uh, like, like yourself, it is really something that a lot of productions should adopt, particularly when, you yeah. know, focusing on training up folks from like, from under-resourced groups. For people who don't understand what that fellowship model is, and Raven, you can correct me, but essentially Sam made an effort to hire as an all-trans crew. But if there was someone who was, if he wasn't able to find someone who was trans, he would hire somebody who was not trans, but then put someone who was trans under that person to learn. For any key that wasn't trans, they had a trans fellow that would join them and, and they'd teach them those folks can learn the skills and like, and then build in the industry, like build their own careers. And that's where it starts. So like, I just love that model and I wish it could be people across the board would adopt it. A new requirement. Can we put that yes. in for, as far as the strike requirements are concerned? Amen. Yes. Strike might be starting on Monday. I hope they go on strike and they get everything they deserve because just some of the conditions these people are working on are ridiculous. Long days and like some cis women getting um, antibiotic prescriptions from their doctors um, to prevent UTIs because they don't have time to go to the bathroom. These people are not treated well. Um, but let's get into your latest project, a drive to top surgery. I got the Emerging Digital and Interactive Award from Imagine Native for a drive to top surgery, which also came with 2,500 Canadian. So that was nice. So it's screened at Imagine Native and this year Imagine Native was all virtual. And it had been virtual last year as well when I pitched another VR idea about essentially doing the work now in a modern day version of Seattle to help propagate virtual seeds from a cedar sapling, which then that cedar sapling brings you into an indigenous future where technological and ecological sustainability is essentially on display for you to uh, interact with in an indigenous version of future Seattle. 
plank houses and even higher hills like the natural hills were almost like cliffs i know you wouldn't like that we'll find some indigenous technology to transport folks up and down these hills i told you this before we started recording when i went to seattle this time i was coming from glacier national park and had been doing a, a lot of hiking a hell of a lot of hiking. So those Seattle Hills, they were like nothing to me, but I had to train for it. I remember when we met, didn't we have like a brief conversation about, we were talking about Afrofuturism and then you gave me some links to tell me about indigenous futurism. Yeah, definitely. And I feel like that's where a lot of my work is going anyways, is slightly experimental, but really bringing in and melding what it means to do documentary, experimental, and narrative work all together, because I don't feel like there's a, a necessity for those things to be separate, but that they have different abilities to add to the story. Tell us what A Drive to Top Surgery is about. A Drive to Top Surgery is about my drive to top surgery. It's essentially a reconstruction of your chest. It's the uh, booby bye-bye, if you will. <laughs> it's different from a normal mastectomy because you're shaping the chest to look more masculine. And of course, it's a reconstruction and a medical necessity for folks who, who need it. And it's about your journey. Yes. Uh, a drive to top surgery is about my once again, the drive to top surgery. Wow, I did a great job naming this Yeah, thing. you did. Like, it's <laughs> like, this is what it is. <laughs> but my grandma is driving me along with my mom in the back is driving me. And it's really, it somehow became a very nice narrative arc in exploration of family and sort of a slice of life of what it means to jump into this big life change and what it means to to have all that nervousness and anxiety build up, but surrounded by love and family. And um, how long is it? It is, I believe, 10 minutes, 45 seconds. It's 360 video. And so there's an interesting aspect to that because of, you know, you don't have to look around. I could have made this flat, as VR folks call it. You're almost a fly on the wall or a fly on the window. Yeah, we're in the car with you. Yeah, yes, okay. you're right behind the uh, rear view mirror, in fact. And so, you know, you have the ability to look at us, but there are also aspects of the drive. There's like a lady walking by on her, her daily walk. There are signs that talk about no racing from 9 p.m. to 5 a.m. I'm like, then are they starting the race at 501 down these residential streets or, or what? So there are different aspects of the environment and being in this world and stuck in the car with this. It's a one shot as well. Mm, okay. Because I only had one chance to record this thing because <laughs> we were late. <laughs> we needed to get down there. Um, and so it somehow turned out, had a very nice narrative arc and... Um, yeah, it was great to not have to edit anything besides the intro and outro. Wow. So it's like, <laughs> it's definitely one shot. So what were the, the logistics of, the? where did you set up the camera in the car? So I set the camera up right behind the rear view mirror. And so I put one, I was shooting on the Ricoh Theta 5. And so I put one lens, essentially the... Uh, part where the camera would be stitched or the two images would be stitched together. I put that right where the A pillars are and where the dashboard is so that one would be looking out and one would be looking straight at us so that there wouldn't be any cuts on me on the hands of the steering wheel and so that the luminance would be similar when it got stitched together. And it wouldn't look like there's a, there's a line right here on the window because it, that's where the two, two bits of the image got stitched together. So just making sure, I made sure the day before and I'd also got a little mount for the camera to be held upside down. So I just flipped that in post, just made sure that everything was good to go the day before with all of the equipment. And then it was stick it on the dash and get going as quick as we qu can because we were like five or 10 minutes late. Oh no, so. and you were drunk. But I still had to wait like an extra hour because they were late on one of the other surgeries. So it was fine. 
did you have discussions with your mom and your grandma about what the conversation would be in the car for for the purposes of the film? You just like put the camera up and let it run. Yep. So it's a little awkward at the beginning, in my mind, at least it's a little awkward. I'm like, okay, what are we going to talk about besides, you know, we're late. (laughs) (laughs) And you can, you can hear my little huff when I close the door and I'm like, I'm just trying to get settled in because it's a rush to get there. Oh, and also that this piece came out of a lot. I watched a lot of YouTube videos leading up to my top surgery and seeing that folks would film themselves up until the point of leaving their homes and then they cut. And then when we cut back, we're in the surgeon's office. And so what is that experience between when you leave home and when you get to where you're going, which I mean, is in and of itself a an experience that everyone can relate to. What is that anxious anxiousness and anxiety leading up to a big moment in your life? So let's get into some of your VR work because like you work across so many different um, medium. And this is more Renelle's expertise because like she's a queen in at least in my world of VR speak. But I know that there are like different types of VR. So are there certain ones that you prefer to work in? And also how do you think that working in a um, working with VR actually enhances indigenous stories? VR has generally been a catch-all well xr is technically the term for the catch-all for virtual reality augmented reality 360 video etc and xr is just extended reality i've mostly worked in 360 video with my piece of drive to top surgery but i've also been starting to go into into virtual reality which means that i am creating an entire world as opposed to say like with pokemon go you would project a Pokemon into the real world. So that would be augmented reality. And so my more recent work that I still need to get more funding for is a piece that I pitched at Imaginative back in 2020. Essentially, it is an exploration of modern and future indigenous and plant relationships in Seattle. What does it look like when you're in a technologically and ecologically sustainable world and indigenous future? And so that's what I've currently been working on, as well as my docuseries. You know, I I don't ever do things the easy way. So, <laughs> but I feel like indigenous presence in VR is incredibly important because of the And film as well, because film focuses so much on the detail and the particular nature of different aspects of life that you can really get the close-ups of. But with VR and being in a space, you are fully immersed in that space. And I think that with the impact of the Western world and Western society on what we experience beyond maybe going to a historical recreation in real life, or a a cultural environment that is around you, I don't think that there is much access to native content or native spaces beyond that, unless you are actively in native communities. Even then you don't always have access to say, longhouses or plank houses or, or just general spaces that might've historically been around you. And so I feel like in, both VR and in video game spaces, there's a lot of creativity and a lot of ability to to create these worlds that we knew and still know and are learning about or relearning about and re-remembering. And also that, of course, with Indigenous futurism, sort of parallel to Afrofuturism, that ability to create societies and worlds that we are in charge of even though there are going to be complexities and and difficulties there is this ability to be in charge of our own destinies as we will be but we're still getting there yes 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 love that love that the national endowment for the humanities actually has funding for vr projects at all stages so you do have to have a fiscal sponsor, um, but you should, particularly for this project, you should definitely like reach out to them, speak to a program officer. It's a new program. I think it's only been about around 
maybe two years, but they fund projects. They're various funds, like all the way from like prototype to like um, actual exhibition, National Endowment for Humanities VR. Since we actually have mentioned um, indigenous featurism, for those of us who, for whom it is new, are there some actual like go-to resources where people can kind of like read up? Are there indigenous creators who like focus on this type of work? Classic would be for as far as uh, um, video games are concerned, Beth LaPonce. She's here in the States and does a lot of video game and academia work. And I think she also, yeah, she wrote or co-wrote a comic so you know indigenous creators are all over the place we're just doing what we want right (laughs) (laughs) but i'd say that a lot of i don't know if this happens in afrofuturism but a lot of indigenous futurism some stuff that falls under that category almost feels like modernism to me and focusing focusing on the modern day and maybe that's because of the historical the acute historical focus on indigeneity as opposed to present and modern day peoples um so yeah i feel like a lot of that falls under it but on twitch at least in his uh, his general handle but he does futurism in regards to kanaka maoli works so hawaiian native hawaiian you know, that I'm pulling from many different resources from, or resources and inspirations beyond just artistry, because everything's tied together. Artistry, finances, cultural connections are all influencing me. Language as well. I have this hilarious skit, but I could only do it in Comanche because of how the language works in that There are particular ways to say me and you or me and Rennell or me, you and Rennell or me, Rennell and someone else that is not you or like the three of us and then another person as well. So, you know, there are interesting ways that thinking about language, culture and how these things interact in the world influence the work that I do. So are you fluent in Comanche? Oh, no, not at all. Oh, okay. I, okay. <laughs> I wish. I wish. Uh, okay. I only started sort of learning it and and doing what I can to remember and brush up on things like maybe a year ago. And so I have some of the tools at my disposal. I am not enrolled, despite my grandfather being enrolled, which is to say my dad's dad. But because of political, yeah, political problems, honestly, I'm not enrolled and he's not enrolled. And so, yeah, well, we, we kind of, we got, we talked a teeny bit about that, yeah. you know, uh, in Seattle, blood, well, particularly from the Cherokee, your Cherokee. Oh uh, boy. Aspect. Yeah. The, the whole blood quantum. Uh, Cherokee and, nation. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> oh, it's, it's complicated. My storytelling company, Raven and Relatives is starting up and, and really came out of that idea of, I'm not the only one creating things. It's it's always a collaborative process. Even if you're the only one making it, there are so many different influences and, and people contributing to your ability to make things. And so that's where the Raven and Relatives came out of because I always liked the and company or and sons of, of Western companies, but really bringing it back to an indigenous perspective. And so recognizing that we're all to to reference and to quote high school musical we're all in this together <laughs> it is always so great to connect with raven we can laugh and also have deep meaningful conversations raven is fearless in their ability and willingness to tell deeply personal stories while also elevating others raven also encourages all of us to take the time to tell our full stories because there are people out there who are willing to bear witness, to listen, and to see all of us. I also appreciate Raven's definition of leadership. Being a leader means realizing that I need to step into the vulnerability and uncomfortability for the safety of the people I'll be putting in front of the camera. Every filmmaker should embody this way of being whenever they set foot on the set. Raven definitely gives us a lot to contemplate and also change. 
We'll make sure to post a link to the YouTube video Raven produced for Native American Heritage Month for Facebook when it comes out next week. Thank you so much for listening today. If you like this episode, please share it with a friend. And remember to rate, review, and subscribe on all your podcast platforms. When you give us that five-star rating, it helps to make people more aware of our podcast. Next week, we'll be headed back overseas to Egypt, where I speak with Mustafa Youssef, one of the founders of Scene Films and the producer of the film Homemade Stories, which is directed by Syrian filmmaker Nadil Al-Dibs. Homemade Stories will have its world premiere at IDFA as part of the Envision competition. We are so happy to announce that we are highlighting IDFA this year. Last week, you heard our episode with Miriam Weigenkamp of Noise PR, which will be representing the following films at IDFA, Banality of Grief, Diagnosia, Eat Your Catfish, The History of the Civil War, Kids Cup, Museum of the Revolution, Name of the Game, Tamaden, and A Thousand Fires. On November 26th, we'll have an interview with IFA's senior programmer, Lor Van Halsema, where we will take a deep dive into the unconscious bias strand of films that will be screened this year. And in a final bit of IFA news, friends of the podcast and season one guests, Bridget O'Shea, Marion Schmidt, who will be a guest on the podcast in 2022, and Anne Redfield of Documentary Association of Europe will be at the festival from November 20th to 24th. There will also be a Documentary Association of Europe meetup for members and those who are curious about the organization on November 23rd at 12 p.m. Central European time. Visit their website and consider joining and paying dues to support the change-making work these ladies are helming. That's right, y'all. You get four episodes in November. We will be taking a break in December, but we'll release a second past guest roundup where we will share good news about our favorite doc peeps. We'll start out January 2022 with two episodes we co-curated for Doc Leipzig in October. Shout out to Anne and Nadia Tenstadt for making that happen for the second year in a row. Today's episode was hosted by Tony Bell and produced by Ronell Schubert. Music is by Sierra Thomas. The What's Up with Doc's team would like to acknowledge the traditional, ancestral, unceded territory of the Chumash and Tongva on which we are recording this podcast. And consider supporting our podcast by clicking on our PayPal link and making a contribution. 